For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, travel to a place called Summerton to learn about an initiative to reclaim a part of the Colorado River. Meet Dave Stryker. He's one of the top jazz guitarists in the world, and he'll be headlining this month's Tucson Jazz Festival. And hear the stories behind a series of art exhibitions that demonstrate how artists can heal and grow by painting the things they feel and see. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Kokopa Indian tribe are also known as those who live by the Cloudy River. That refers to the Colorado River, where the Kokopa have lived for centuries. Today, decades of drought and development have had negative impacts on the river delta that's near Summerton, Arizona. Next, Elisa Resnick reports on an effort to restore this region to at least some of its former glory. We're pulled off a dirt road in the West Kokopo Reservation, just south of the Modelos Dam in Yuma. A few yards away is the 30-foot steel bollard border wall built by the Trump administration. Water used to flow here across the border and all the way into the Sea of Cortez. More than a century ago, Kokopo pilots navigated steamboats across its fast-moving current. Now, there's a decent number of these little uh, tunnels, but they do change over time. That's Kokopa Cultural Resource Manager Justin Brunden. And the tunnels he's talking about are these makeshift trails etched into a thicket of pale green reeds that tower above our heads. These are Phragmites, an invasive species with thick tubes topped with sharp leaves. And they're taking over. We're forcing our way through them to reach the banks. This is the river that uh, cut the Grand Canyon, and at our current location, towards the end of the river, it is uh, about knee height. Brunden is a Cocopa tribal member whose family is from an area that is now Mexico. He says the Cocopa used this water to farm, fish, and hunt before a border existed. Now what's left is what Brunden says feels like the world's longest lake. So it's a completely different landscape. If, if you were to take one of our ancestors and bring them here today to stand on the banks of the river, they would not recognize it. The Colorado River supplies water to some 40 million people in the American West. Over the last half century, it's been dammed 15 times. On Kokopa land, Brendan says that's not only shrunk the river, it's also helped Phragmites thrive. The floodwaters would scalp the land and then deposit new soil. And so Phragmites would have to start from scratch. And now, because there's no more flooding, there's no more flood scarring, there's no more movement of the river, they just take a hold of the bank and they don't let go. Jen Alsbach with the tribe's Environmental Protection Office says dams, drought, and climate change have decimated native species. Um, you know, this all would have been wild mesquite groves and, um, you know, teeming with wildlife. Um, and then, of course, the cottonwoods and willows that, you know, used to thrive along the river. That landscape isn't too distant a memory for Willadina Thomas. I remember it having water all in this area where we had, I mean, 
trees, I mean like a forest of cottonwood. She's a tribal member who works with Allspock at the environmental office. She says kokopa come here to be with the river and collect materials like strands of willow to make cradle boards. She came as a kid with her grandpa. She says he always warned her that one day all of this might be gone. And I never understood that until I came back out here and I saw what, you know, something that we had abundance of and now to see that we don't have it, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's a long, simmering problem she and Allspock are trying to address. Like in what you're hearing from a video of the work being done here. They spent hours here and at another river access point further north, first using machetes and long shears, then heavy machinery to cut back Phragmites and stout tamarisks. Just off the river's banks, young cottonwood, mesquite, and willow trees thrive in the tribe's nursery. Like these cottonwoods, I want to show you those cottonwoods right there. I planted those um, four years ago. Thomas is surrounded by rows of tiny trees in plastic pots, saplings cut from more mature trees like the ones she planted or brought in from elsewhere in Arizona. They'll grow here until they're ready to be planted. The goal is to get back to some version of what Thomas remembers growing up. You know, after seeing all that hard work and seeing the growth, it was like, you know, like I said, it makes me proud to say, like, you know, we did this and it's coming back. This past spring, the environmental office cut back a few acres of Phragmites and the river was visible once again. But six months later, they all grew back. Crews are trying again with herbicide to prevent them from returning so quickly. It's hard work. But Thomas says this river is Kokopa's lifeblood. So they'll keep pushing forward as long as it takes. In Somerton, I'm Elisa Rasnick. Guitarist Dave Stryker is at a place in his career where he doesn't need to prove a thing about his music, but he's still constantly pushing himself into deeper water. Starting in the late 70s, Stryker became a sideman to artists like Jack McDuff and Stanley Turrentine, following in the footsteps of guitar greats Wes Montgomery and Kenny Burrell. Today he's been the leader on more than two dozen critically acclaimed albums of his own. I will talk with Dave Stryker next as he prepares his quartet to kick off the 2022 Tucson Jazz Festival at the Fox Tucson Theater on January 14th. Well, I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska, and I left and went to New York City about 21 or so. What was the formative music that you heard growing up in Nebraska? Well, when I started, I had an older sister. She was about five years older than me, and she had all the the Beatles 45, so I'd have to say the Beatles was the first thing I got into. Then with Santana and groups like the Allman Brothers came along, it steered me more towards blues and maybe a little more improvising style stuff. And then I tell the story that I went to a jam session at the Union Hall and they were playing songs for my father. And, uh, you know, I just got up there and started playing and uh, playing on my rock licks. And one of the guys came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, man, this is jazz. You can't be playing all those rock licks. So I was like, what? <laughs> So I uh, went down to the record store the next day, and I don't know how, but somehow I walked out of there with a George Benson CTI record and a, and a Coltrane, my favorite things. So that's kind of how I got into it. One of the local sax players took me under his wing and started teaching me uh, standards and stuff. 
I got into guys like Grant Green and Wes Montgomery, Pat Martino. This is back when you'd go to the record store and look at the album covers and read who's on what records. And once I got the jazz bug, I, I was off to the races. You know, I never looked back. <laughs> you mentioned Grant Green, and I know that in addition to being one of my favorite artists, he also played for a long time with a man named Stanley Turrentine. And you also developed a great working uh, relationship with, uh, with Mr. T. Did you ever feel overwhelmed uh, at the beginning when you realized you were filling the spot that artists like Kenny Burrell and Grant Green before you? Well, let's not forget George Benson. Yes, sir. <laughs> Indeed. To tell you the truth, before I joined Stanley, I had played two years with Jack McDuff. So Jack McDuff, the organist, previously had Grant Green, George Benson and Pat Martino as his guitar players. Mm -hmm. So that was my very first gig was, you know, talk about the hot seat. Three of my favorite guitar players of all time and realizing that, you know, this is the level that Jack is used to. So, man, it really made me step up my game. And I had also been preparing myself all these years, you know, by listening to those records. And and those those were some of my favorite artists anyway. And it was really a gift that uh, I'm very grateful that I got to, to... end up working with uh, both McDuff and Stanley Turrentine. So, Dave, one of your certainly most viewed videos online is on YouTube, the performance that, duet performance, rather, that you and Stanley Turrentine did on the fine song My Romance. I wonder, when you hear that recording now, what do you think? That came out on a record called Live at Blues Alley. There's a club in Washington, D.C. called Blues Alley. Um, And that was a song that uh, I always enjoyed playing because Stanley's a guy that you can tell in, in one or two notes. Uh, who it is, you know, and that's kind of the goal, I think, of any any musician is to reach that level where somebody can hear a couple notes and they know who it is. You know, no one could play a ballad like Stanley. He had just such a beautiful sound. We would play that just a duet. Later on, sometimes the band would come in and we'd, we'd go into time, but uh, it was a real thrill, and also it was challenging because it made me have to learn how to accompany somebody like like a Stanley Turrentine and, and not overplay and not underplay and to follow him. And, you know, I hadn't heard that in a long time. So it's nice to go back and listen to that. It was probably from the late 80s, I'd say. So your upcoming performance here at the Tucson Jazz Festival, what have you got in store? And, and how do you um, kind of prep yourself? What kind of a set do you think about doing when you have an opportunity like this? Well, I'm really looking forward to this. You know, working at the, the Tucson Jazz Festival, my friend uh, Jed Paradis is uh, involved in, in bringing my quartet as well as uh, Eric Alexander and his group. 
we're looking forward to playing at the Fox. And our guest on this concert is great Warren Wolf on vibraphone. And we've been doing a lot of playing in New York at the Jazz Standard and Birdland, as well as Keystone Corner in Baltimore. Uh, Warren, of course, is, is, is a fantastic musician, a really great vibraphonist. And I've had uh, some records uh, that I did this project called 8-Track, where I take music from the 70s and I put my own spin on it. And we're able to kind of improvise and play the songs in a jazz way, you know, tunes by Stevie Wonder and Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye. You know, people, when they recognize a song, they know uh, it's a way to, to communicate with the audience and bring the audience into what you're doing. If they hear something, a melody they know, uh, it, it, you know, makes them feel like they're part of the music more. And I mean, I still like to write my own music and I, I do that in the sets as well. And we'll be playing some music from from the 8-track stuff, some of my originals as well, and um, really looking forward to bringing my band down there as well as, uh, you know, hearing my friend Eric Alexander and his group from New York. He's doing a project with the Strings, I believe. Dave, why don't you pick a song that you'd like the audience to hear right now from 8-track? Oh, how about Stevie Wonder's Too High? Why would you choose that song? <laughs> has nothing to do with me, believe me. <laughs> it's off the latest uh, A-Track 3, it's called, and uh, kind of a cooking tune burner. great unturned stone for you is there still a project that is your dream record date funny you should mention that mark because uh i've been working this last year on it and it's coming out this is uh, this is really my dream project it's called as we are and it's coming out january 7th it's all new music and it's with a string quartet and i have a hell of a band with me i got uh, brian blade on drums and john patitucci on bass a young uh, pianist named julian shore who was a student of mine when he was 14 at a jazz camp and is now uh, 20 years later, we spent a year collaborating on this, uh, this new record and he arranged the strings and it's something completely different than what I've done before. And I can't wait for you to hear it. It's, uh, I'm really proud of this. The Dave Stryker Quartet with Warren Wolf will officially launch the 2022 Tucson Jazz Festival at the Fox Tucson Theater on Friday, January 14th. Continuing through January 23rd, artists including Diane Reeves, the Eric Alexander Quintet, Kendrick Scott, Emmett Cohen, and Arthur Vent will be lighting up venues across the city. You can find a detailed guide at TucsonJazzFestival.org. Art, music, and many other creative outlets are known to have therapeutic benefits for their practitioners. In many cases, they provide essential solace for people in difficult situations. 
Tony Paniagua brings us an example as he talks with a successful Tucson artist who began her personal transformation while she was living behind bars. In 2005, Tucson resident Marianne Chisholm was sentenced to prison for nonviolent white-collar crimes. She was sent to the all-women's Perryville Prison Complex in Goodyear, Arizona, facing as much as 30 years of incarceration. It was dirt, and it was orange, and it was brown, and it was gray, and it was miserable. It was lonely. It was uh, an indescribable kind of lonely. And that was just one of the challenges as she tried to adapt to her solemn situation. I have a bipolar type 2, obsessive compulsive disorder, clinical depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But Chisholm decided to get busy and not allow her surroundings to dictate her future. She discovered art and never looked back. So I started doing portraits and paintings. I was in prison for 14 years. Um, and I won relief and release on appeal. And during that time, I painted every day, or almost every day, that I could, I could manage. I painted 5,600 pieces. And I would meditate while I did it. So it was like mandatory meditation. Is that what the artwork meant for you? Yes, yes. So I literally sat in the same place on my bed, literally, for 14 years, sitting in a yoga pose. 5,600 works of art. That's an average of more than one every single day for 14 years. It was my sanity. It was my therapy. And it took me out of there. So I was never there when I was painting. And the colors were everything. Everything that I wanted to have in contrast to what I was living there. Bright blues, cerulean, magenta, the bright kind of glowing warm yellow of the sun with a little tinge of orange, not that industrial, I'm an inmate orange. No longer an inmate, Chisholm is now a professional artist. She has sold hundreds of traditional works and NFTs, non-fungible tokens that can be used in displays such as digital canvases or television screens. I made a decision when I started painting that I would paint emotions. So it wasn't faces or people, it was emotions. And now I've taken those pieces from times of great suffering and turned them into living works of art digitally that, uh, that convey almost like a little film. She's also trying to help others with similar backgrounds, hoping to provide some inspiration and support. While incarcerated, Chisholm found out and participated in community exhibits organized by the Prison Ministry Program of the Episcopal Diocese of Arizona. Reverend Kim Kraka has been involved in this effort for years. This is my church. <laughs> this is my spiritual fulfillment. This is my role as a servant of God to help. I mean, we're specifically told in, in, in Matthew to visit those in prison. One of her major goals is to raise awareness about the correction system and the individuals who are serving time. The exhibits present the public with donated works from inmates or former inmates. They are driven to, uh, to provide this expression and I am driven to share it with others. Women in confinement cannot profit from their creations, but the shows accept monetary donations that can be distributed to the artists whenever possible. 
Reverend Kreka says the ladies cannot be sent any materials to work on their art, so the inmates have to buy them at the approved prison store or be creative. For example, some recycle envelopes or use their fingers instead of brushes. I think that this art exhibit is really unique because there's so many perspectives that are on display here, but the point is that their hearts are in all of them, and it's really nice to show that whole range because all of them have something to say. Reverend Kreka says the work can range from professionally intricate to basic, but the cathartic benefits are invaluable. Not only learning how to forgive themselves, but how to uh, forgive those who wronged them, for those who abused them, because many of the women are suffering from PTSD from horrible abusive relationships that they were involved in. So that message of forgiveness carries through in their art. As they learn to forgive themselves, their art changes as well. For Mary Ann Chisholm, this talent has opened a life-changing path that continues to surprise her. It still blows my mind that people want to buy something that I created in my mind. Am I uh, lucky? Yes. I have 50,000 followers on Twitter, and I, I am definitely lucky. I have a terrific group of people in the community supporting me. Could you ever visualize yourself in this situation a few years ago prior to 2018? I'm a firm believer in the laws of attraction. So every day that I wanted to feel sorry for myself or I wanted to give up, I would think instead, it's a good thing that I'm gonna be home soon. It's a good thing that this painting is going to make me famous someday, you know, just anything positive that could be thought instead of the negativity. And I tried to convey that to the other inmates and people that were in prison as well. You don't have to always be sad. If you want to change your reality, you've got to start living in that moment. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Straight from the Heart is on display at the Coffee Exchange at 6841 North Camino Principal on Tucson's east side. It'll be there until the end of January. There's more information on our website at azpm.org. Last week, there were surely many New Year's resolutions made about setting aside more time to follow artistic pursuits. There's a long-running group here in Tucson who celebrate this goal and follow a simple and traditional technique that helps them to create the space in which to accomplish it. They are the Sonoran Plen Air Painters, and currently their work is being featured in two different exhibitions. Here are painters Denise Fenelon and Emily McClunky to tell us more. Denise and I joined at the same time, and I don't know, it's been quite a while, I'd say 15 years, something like that. Yeah, people have been doing plein air painting primarily in that it's associated with the French Impressionists, because the uh, equipment that you use to paint changed at that time, the technology got better, and so instead of having to cart all sorts of cumbersome stuff outside, people could go outdoors and actually paint. And so the French Impressionists were really sort of the first group that started doing that. And that would be the 1870s, 1880s in that time frame. And it's a social activity, is that correct? It is, yeah. You paint by yourself, but it it is one of the things that, like all through COVID, um, we've been meeting and having what are called paint outs, where people go out to different locations and paint. Because it's an individual thing that you do yourself, And you can be socially distanced without it being a problem. But you're also there with other people that are also painting. And so it's just a nice way to enjoy nature and a nice way to be outdoors. 
it's a different thing to see something like when you're driving by where you just say, oh, that's a nice palm tree or a mountain or scenery or whatever. It's a different thing to be standing there. It's kind of like if you go for a walk, you just see things differently because it's slower. What our group offers people is camaraderie and an ability to learn from each other, especially for women. Sometimes you feel a little nervous going out and painting by yourself and this allows you to have people to paint with so you don't feel you're alone out there. Denise, were you serious about painting before you began participating in this group? Yes, I was a art teacher for a number of years and I was painting since college, painting studio works primarily. And uh, I had taken a workshop back when I lived in California and um, Artist Susan Sarbach was with the Cape Cod School of Fine Arts, and they're kind of the preeminent plein air teachers in America. And she's the one that kind of got me started on plein air painting and and looking at the light and and seeing how things look at different times of the day. So it wasn't until I moved to Tucson. We have such dramatic desert light here that's constantly changing. That was the desert stuff that just made me go, wow. And I really seriously got into plein air painting. Do you have a painting featured in a brush with the desert? And if so, uh, what was your subject matter? In the brush with the desert, because I normally paint mostly architectural ones, I did do um, a plein air painting out at the Desert Museum. And it was one called A View from Cat Canyon, which is one of the three paintings that I have in the show. And Emily, what about you? I have three landscapes. One of them was painted out at the desert. Another one is um, in Madera Canyon, and another one is in Agua Caliente Park on the east side of town. Whenever we've painted, people come and look, and so many times have I had them say, do you mind if I take your photo with your painting, you know, while you're painting? And I'm like, okay, fine. So, you know, there's something about... um, the creation process that I think people get excited about, that they're seeing something beautiful, hopefully, being created right in front of their eyes. Let's tell everybody once again where and when the shows are and uh, when they're going to be available to view. The Brush with the Desert is at the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum, and it runs through January 16th. It's free with admission to the park. The park is open now from 8.30 until 4, every day. Okay, and Denise? So the other show, A Moment in the Barrio, is at the Tucson Desert Art Museum at the Four Corners Gallery, and that's running through the end of January, open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it's 10 to 2 daily. Thank you to my guests, Denise Fenelon and Emily McConkie, representing the Sonoran Plen Air Painters and the Barrio Painters. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.